quick apology to our children. We're not going to have children's sermon as has kind of become our custom when we do Lord's Supper, but uh, we'll pick that back up next week. Um, and so, um, but we love our kids and uh, are thankful for them this morning. If you would, go ahead and make your way to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up our sermon series on 1 Peter, and then next week we'll be jumping in to 2 Peter, and that'll take us probably through November, as I said last week. As you're going there, I, I can't help but stop and think about the song that Brian did, and uh, I, every time I hear that song, I always think about the miraculous love of Jesus Christ and of God our Savior. There are probably things in all of our lives that we have not shared with anyone for fear of how they would judge us, for fear of their response to us. And yet what an amazing thing it is that the creator of all the universe, the God that knows everything, he knows all of the skeletons in every closet of your heart. He knows every mistake you've ever made. He knows every thought you've ever had. That he loves you beyond all comparison to the point that he would sacrifice his life for you. That is amazing, amazing love that I think we take for granted all too often. And I pray that uh, just as I, I pray that you would remember that song this week, just to think about and to meditate upon the love of God for you. Not just when you obey, not just when you do what's right, but the love of God for you when you disobey. That he still extends that love, that he still extends grace and mercy. What, a, what an incredible thing that is. Well, as we, that has nothing to do with the sermon in some ways, but in other ways it has everything to do with it. As we come, uh, come this morning, though, we come to this chapter 5, this last chapter in this letter, and Peter is wrapping up and, and putting a bow kind of on this letter. He's saying some final words uh, for us as a congregation and, and for the re first readers of this as well so that they, uh, they may go out different, uh, that they may follow through with all that he's been teaching us about suffering, about how to suffer in a godly manner, about how to live a holy life that's different. And so we're going to take one, one look at this, and, uh, and we're not going to be able to spend time as much time as I would like to. Um, there's several things in here that I would love to, to pick apart, but uh, what, a, what a great chapter. And so if you would, hopefully by now you found... 1 Peter chapter 5, if you would stand that we may honor the reading of God's word this morning. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the, sh the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Being sober-minded, be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon also is likewise chosen, who also is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, and Lord, we read through your word, and what, what encouraging words we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5. What, what incredible words of, of uplifting, Lord. I, I pray that we see as you encourage those that are in places of authority that that they would follow you and how you have shepherded the church how you care for the church as you talk to the congregation and and encourage us to lean on one another but also to trust in the good and faithful God that you are that you desire what's best for us that you desire to give us good gifts and Lord that one day that you are coming again and Lord that at that time we will join you in all glory and in all heaven Lord that we will be singing praises with the angels above for we realize that you are holy 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 Lord what things we have to look forward to I pray this morning Lord that you would use these words to encourage our hearts that we would be able to go out and to live differently Lord, to be examples to those that we come into contact with, not that we would point to ourselves, but that we would point to you and to your gospel. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we go through this final chapter together, Peter just kind of gives some final thoughts. He's just giving some final instructions in some ways about what some of the things that he wants to communicate to those uh, that are reading this letter for the first time. And he, he looks at kind of three things, and we're going to go through all three of these, but he gives a word to elders. He starts off with a word to elders, then he gives a word to the congregation, and then he gives a word of conclusion. So a word of elders, a word to the congregation, and then a word of conclusion there. And the conclusion is there from uh, verse 12 down through the end of the chapter. And we're just going to actually start there just a little bit. Um, not the, this isn't on your PowerPoint, but just some things that are, are interesting there that uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on. But you have there in verse 12, it says, by Silvinius, that is a guy that you might know by another name, uh, Silas. Silas was a missionary partner with Paul for a long time. And, and this is the same individual. We get the idea that at the very least that Silas was the one that delivered this letter, though he also might have been the transcriber for Peter. In other words, he might have been the, the one that took down the words that Peter was speaking for this letter. And so we get to see him, a, a faithful brother, as Peter describes him. We also get to see Mark, um, also known as John Mark, uh, who Peter calls a son in the faith. Uh, and, uh, and or that's the way we understand he calls him a son literally but it's a son in the faith and one that he had taken under his wing and mentored and brought along and this is the same John Mark who would write the gospel of Mark 
who many people believe is the, is the gospel according to Peter, as, as Peter experienced. And so we kind of see that, see Mark show up as well, and that's kind of cool. We get an interesting little reference. We get an interesting little reference in the, that it says, she who is at Babylon, is, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And that might be kind of odd for us. We don't really, some of us might be going, what the heck? Um, because Babylon at this time was in ruins, and what this is actually a reference to is the church that's in Rome. You'll remember with me that when we started this, pat, this book that oftentimes that Peter is going through and he is connecting the current New Testament church with the Old Testament idea of Israel and the reality of Israel. And in the same way that Babylon was, was one that carried Israel into exile, so too Peter wants us to see, and you can go back in chapter 1 and see the connection to this, but he wants us to remember that we are exiles, that we are aliens, that as believers, this is not home, that we are simply passing through in a strange land, that we have another home. And so he reminds us of that with this little word about Babylon and the church in Rome, and then he ends it, uh, and we'll talk about this more later, but he ends it with peace to all of you who are in Christ. That idea of peace there, it's not, just, it's not just the absence of chaos. It's not the absence of conflict. It is a fulfillment. It is the ability to be content. It is the ability to be satisfied that can only happen for those that know Christ, who know what it means to be made in the image of God and have the fulfillment of that happen in the deliverance that Christ offers. And so he says, peace to you, the the fulfillment of all that that means, not just the absence of conflict, but just the totality of that word. And so it's a great, a great word of conclusion. But before he gets to that, he he has two words, one final word to elders, and then he has a final word to the congregation. And so we're going to look at those predominantly as we look at those. And as we start out with a word to elders, though, I want to take just a little bit of our time, just a little bit of our time to talk about elders in the New Testament, because I think sometimes we come to that word and we're really confused. Um, I know me personally, uh, as a a young man, whenever I would really read the word elders, it, it just didn't make sense to me. And And because of that, the rest of the context of the book didn't make sense. And I was like, what is he talking about there? And then as uh, our church, the church that I grew up in, became, uh, went to having elders, having a plurality of elders in the leadership structure, uh, I remember when that first happened, I was like, this is not good. Like, I'm a good Baptist. What is happening here? Like... And, and it was concerning, and I wasn't the only one. There was a large part of our congregation that was like, eldership, this is weird. Like, what are we doing? And, and what I've come to understand, and I'm so thankful for good mentors and, and good people in my life who opened the word of God and said, okay, we're not going to tell you what to think, but look at this scripture and go deal with it. And then I was able to do that and process it and pray over it and began to see uh, the structure that God had put together for the New Testament church. And then I began to read Baptist history because I'm a nerd. And I realized that we weren't going to something new. We were going back to something that Baptist had done. Um, and so uh, it, it gives you a great peace. But we have to understand it. And like I said, it helps us to understand the context. How do you read James and not understand the plurality of eldership? When he says, if you're sick, call the elders. Well, that's kind of hard to do if you don't know what that is. Or you don't understand the plurality of that. Um, and so we're going to take a very brief look at what this looks like in the New Testament. All right? 
First, when we see elders in the, New Test- in the New Testament, one of the things that we need to understand them as is under shepherds. They're under shepherds. Now, there are lots of titles for the same office. Sometimes you'll see the title pastor. Sometimes you'll see the title elder. Sometimes you'll see the title bishop, believe it or not. Sometimes that's how it's translated. Sometimes you'll see the title under shepherd. Sometimes you'll see the title overseer. Okay, All of those, same office, same position. Just different names, and part of that is because of how they work and the things that they are to accomplish. But the one I want to focus on is under-shepherd, because I think that gives probably, if not the best, one of the best pictures of what this office is to accomplish. We know that we have the great shepherd. In fact, Peter mentions that, that we have a chief shepherd that is over all the church, Jesus Christ, that he is there leading and caring for the church. But in his wisdom, he has placed under shepherds, he's placed those below him that that function as his hands and feet and to the local church. And that's what elders do. That's what elders do. They care and they oversee the local congregation. They feed, they're there to, to assist spiritually the church, to help lead the church, to follow the will of God. We see this in a couple places, and I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures to take home today. We see it in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. We see it in Acts chapter 20, 28. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We see it in Hebrews 13, 17. And, of course, we see it here in 1 Peter 5. So we have this idea of under-shepherd, that they care for the church, that they care for the spiritual needs of the church. We also see, not only do we see the titles of under-shepherd and all these other titles, but we see that it always happens in plurality. It always happens in plurality. You see it in Acts 14, 23. You see it in Acts 20, 17. You see it in Philippians 1, 1. You see it in 1 Timothy 5, 17. You see it in James 5, 14. When, When elders are discussed, when the leadership of the church is discussed, it's plurality. There's more than one. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not what they would call a kind of a chief elder, a a chief teaching pastor. We see that in Ephesians, okay, Uh, or in the Ephesian church, not in the book of Ephesians, but we see it in the Ephesian church because we have Timothy, right? Paul has planted them there. Paul has placed him there as kind of a lead elder. But what does he tell Timothy? Go find other elders, like raise up other elders from within the church. We see it in Titus as well, same idea. Okay, that there is a plurality. We see, by the way, we see the same structure in the church of Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, is kind of the chief elder, but there are other elders with him that carry that burden along with him. And so we have this plurality of elderships. We also see that they are distinct from deacons. They are distinct from deacons. If you look in Acts chapter 6, you begin to see the separation of duties. So you have the you have a problem that comes before the church. And what happens is the church finds out that the widows, some of the widows are not being served equally. They're not being served in the manner that they should. So this problem is brought before the elders, before the leadership. And those guys say, look, we want to make sure this happens. We want to make sure that these people are taken care of. However, we should devote ourselves to the spiritual needs of the church through the teaching of the word and through prayer. So you church need to 
find seven guys who are full of the Holy Spirit who can meet the, need, the physical needs of the church. So there's two separate duties here. Not only that, but we see in 1 Timothy, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that there are two separate sets of qualifications. You'll see a set of qualifications for elders, and you'll see a separate qual- and then you'll see a set of qualifications for deacons. They're not the same office. They don't have the same responsibilities. They don't have the same gifts, I would even say. Like, I, I've seen this in, in my church back home when we begin to explore this, and I go, man, that guy is a deacon. Like, he has a servant's heart, and he, he jumps in with both hands, and, and man, that's just, that's just who he is. But he would be a stinky elder. Nothing against him, but he wouldn't be a good elder. Like, he, he doesn't have some of the gifts and some of the talents that we see described in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that an elder should have. On the same hand, there are some elders at the church I grew up that are frankly stinky deacons. They are great men of God, and God has gifted them with teaching, and God has give them, gifted them with uh, oversight and with godly wisdom. But they just don't have a, a servant's heart that you see called for in a deacon. And so it's, it's not better or worse or e- on either one. It's just that God gifts us differently. It's kind of like what Paul says when he describes the body. Should an eye try to act like a hand or a hand try to act like an ear or a foot try to act like something? No. You've been gifted specifically for where God has placed you. And so we see the distinction from deacons. One other thing that's not in your notes but, but needs to be heard um, very carefully is that it does not negate, eldership does not negate congregationalism. This is probably the number one thing that when, when especially us as Baptists hear the term elders, we start flipping out over, and I am guilty, okay? We hear elders, we're like, that means we're never going to have a voice in the church again, and we're never going to vote again, and oh, these elders are going to put pink carpet, and they're going to put down green sofas, and we're all, no, okay? It doesn't negate congregationalism. Look at two examples, how these things come together. Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 15. You're going to see two examples of how eldership and congregationalism works together. Okay? So in both instances, you have a problem, uh, an issue that comes up. In chapter 6, where we talked about it, it was the widows not being served correctly. And so this issue comes up. The issue in 15 is that (laughs) there are Gentile believers... Like, I know that's hard to imagine for us, being Gentiles. But there are Gentile believers, and so there's this issue, and they're not sure how to handle it. And so what happens is the elders, as a plurality, come together, and they begin to pray and to discuss these issues. And then what do we see them do? We see them gather the congregation and say, here's the issue. Here's what we have prayed over and what we believe God is leading us to. What say you? And it says that the church agreed. The church saw that it was good, and then the the church acted. Notice that in chapter 6 that they don't say, here's the plan, we're going to have this new thing called deacons. Are you okay with that? And then they say, yeah, we're okay with that, and then the elders start naming guys. Oh, no, 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 no. They say, okay, church, if you agree with that, then you pick the deacons. You say who's going to do that office. You begin to act. In the same way, in chapter 15, they say, okay, this is the way we're going to handle it. The church agrees with it, and then it's like, okay, then we need to start accepting them. It's not just an act of the elders. It's it's a movement of the church. In the same way we see in Corinthians, there are elders, but when it comes to church discipline, it's not the elders 
who ultimately enact church discipline. It is the church who enacts church discipline. And so it's not, it does not negate congregationalism. It doesn't negate the ability of the church to have a voice. Um, but it is rather just the structure that we see laid out um, in, in the New Testament. One word that uh, I wanted to give as well, um, Melissa unfortunately has the privilege to hear parts of my sermon throughout the week um, before she gets to hear it on Sunday. And one of the things she noted to me was, you need to make the distinction between associate pastors and elders. So associate pastors are great. There, there are times that churches get big enough that they need other associate pastors. And at times we could consider those as elders, but that's really not what we see in the New Testament. What we see in the New Testament is by and large, except for in certain cases like Timothy and Titus and some others, by and large the elders, are the, especially the plurality of elders, is raised up from the church body itself. God has placed men in churches who are given the distinct gifts that are mentioned in 1 Timothy. And they are to serve in that capacity as God has called them to do. And so we're not just, we're not just talking about you should have multiple people on staff. When we talk about eldership, it is a lay person. It is someone that is raised up from the body of Christ itself and is identified by the church as having these gifts and being called to this position, um, just as the same would be for a deacon, okay? We have a plurality of deacons. It doesn't matter, mean we go out to a bunch of churches and steal those guys from other places and that we pay them all different ways. No, it's raising guys up that have been gifted that way inside the church. All right. Crash course on elders overview, all right? So <clears throat> go home, read those chapters, uh, read some of those verses, and, and I would love to talk with you about it sometime, but it, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing that we need to grapple with and we need to grab hold of in the New Testament because it better helps us to understand the context of the passages we read, like when we read in James 5, gather the elders together. Gather those who are called to be spiritual caretakers in your church together. And to pray over people. Alright, so all that to say this. Peter gives a word to elders. He starts here in chapter 5. This is where the passage really begins. And he, he calls out the elders and he says, guys, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I need you to shepherd well. I need you to shepherd well. Verse 2, it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Okay? He says, I need you to shepherd well. This is a call back, by the way, to the very words of Christ to Peter. If you go back to John chapter 21 and look at verses 15 through 17, you're going to see Jesus give a very similar command to Peter himself when he says, take care of my flock feed my sheep okay and so he is passing that word on now to the to the leadership of these churches that he's writing to saying you need to shepherd well how does he say that we do that well he says first don't do it don't do it out of compulsion okay don't do it out of compulsion rather do it willingly and eagerly do it willingly and eagerly. This is some, should be something that you are called to. It should be something that, that you want to do, that you're excited about, that you know that God's moved in your life. And the IMB 
As you go through the process to become a missionary, sometimes that process takes a year, sometimes it takes longer than that. But as you go through that process, the thing that drives everybody crazy is over and over and over and over and over again, they ask you, what is your call? What is your call? What is your call? What is your call? And by about the fourth time, you're like, I know you have a file on me. Just read it. You know my call for crying out loud. But let me tell you this, they are not doing it because they want to hear it. They're doing it because they want to make sure you know it. They want you to have it memorized, that God has placed a call in your life. Because there are times when you're on the field, when you're dealing with a culture that you're not used to, when you're dealing with people that don't seem to be listening, when you are eating food that's making you sick, when you can't seem to get clean because there's just dirt everywhere, when it's hot, that you, the only thing keeping you from buying a plane ticket home is your call. And the reminder that the king has placed you here. Let me tell you, as an elder, as a deacon, there are times that you serve the church and you love the church well. But for whatever reason, the enemy speaking lies or, or rubbing you the wrong way, and it is difficult. And you need to be reminded that the king has placed you here. And you do this eagerly with great love for the church. Shepherd well. He says, not only shepherd well, but be examples. This is, man, this is word to me this morning. The guys, uh, the deacons reminded me a couple of weeks ago as we met uh, that this was Pastor Appreciation Sunday. And I was like, great. So I'm preaching a sermon to myself on Pastor Appreciation Sermon. That's great. So, but this is a great, this is hugely convicting to me. Be an example. Like if you came and lived life with me 24-7, I would pray that you would see the sermon lived out. Now the confession is that doesn't always happen. The confession is there are times that I fail. There are times that I go home and I, I do something. And sometimes it's even on a Sunday afternoon and my wife looks at me and I'm like, I know, I just preached that. Like, I fail. But my prayer to God is that he would give me great grace and great mercy. That I could live an example before the church. That they would not just hear the words come out of my mouth, but rather they would see it in my life. And he calls that for all of the elders, for all those that find, them find themselves in places of shepherding and care for the church. So he says, be examples. He also says, avoid the pitfalls. Avoid the pitfalls. Again, don't do this out of compulsion. Don't do it because somebody else thinks you would be a good elder or someone else thinks you would be a good pastor. If you do it on the expectations of others, it's going to be a rocky road, brother. It's not going to be good. Don't do it out of compulsion. Don't do it out of gain. Don't do it for the money. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I don't know that that's why a lot of guys in the United States get into this job. But for for the New Testament, okay, it was, this was a source of income that was steady. And there were a lot, there were a lot of guys that were joining the pastorate, joining the, the eldership, because it was a way to get gain. Peter says, don't do that. Do it because you love the church. Do it because you desire what's best for the church. And then lastly, don't do it in a domineering fashion. Don't ride roughshod. Don't take your authority and abuse it. Give oversight. He tells us give oversight. Give direction. Give encouragement. Give, give discipline where it's needed. But 
But don't do it in, an, in domineering fashion. Don't ride roughshod over your congregation. Don't, don't be the pastor that has the iron grip and the iron fist from the pulpit. That's not what we're called to. That's not, we don't see that in the example of Christ. We don't see that in the New Testament, so don't do it. I told a, a buddy of mine, and I'm just going to do this story quick, but I had a buddy of mine, that great, great man of God. I believe he's going to be a great pastor uh, again someday, but he went to a church, first pastorship, and he saw there was just a lot of things going on in this church that probably shouldn't have been going on, um, and he wanted to change everything today. And I told him, uh, later after we could kind of talk about it, but he, he ended up losing that pastorship. He ended up losing that position. And later, as him and I were processing that together, I said, brother, I really think you, you were doing the right thing. You were going the right direction, but you were going an 80 and a 35. You were going 80 and a 35, and you just got caught. I said, you got, I said it's, it's patience when you take a church, when you take a family. You're not you can't change everything in, in a day and a half. It's, it's just not going to happen that way. That church has 100 plus years of history in it. Like, you're not going to change that. Just boom. And I said, so we have to be careful when we shepherd that we don't go too fast. I love what one of my brothers says, uh, Joe Thrower. We've had him here preach here before. Um, he's the pastor at Prince Avenue. One of the things that I love that Joe says is, do I want to be a shepherd that I, when I get to heaven and give an account for how I did as a pastor, that I say, we got from point A to point B in three months, but, you know, I lost 98% of the sheep. Or do you want to be a pastor that stands before the king of heaven that says, we got to point A to point B. It took us 15 years, but we only lost one. So we've got to be careful in how we shepherd. We've got to do it with care. We've got to do it the way that he calls us to do it, but we've got to do it with care. Now, the interesting question is, why here? Why does Peter put this passage here? It's one thing to look at it and understand that what he's saying to elders, but it's another thing to say, why, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to the letter? Well, it applies in the sense that he is telling, he's reminding the elders, look, this whole book is about suffering. This whole book is about persecution. Your church is hurting. Your churches are hurting. There are people that are suffering, people that are going through difficult things. You need to take care of them. You need to be an example. They don't know how to suffer in a holy manner. They're not gonna, they're not, that's not going to come instinctively. You've got to set the example as you go through persecution, as you go through suffering. Your response is going to be the example and dictate how they respond. You set the example. Shepherd well, instruct well, teach well. As they go through things, how are you going to care for them? And so he, he puts this word here to elders just to call their attention to, hey, guys, look at what's going on around you. Look at what's going on around you. And shepherd well. Now, he doesn't stop there. He gives that word to the elders, but he also gives a word to the congregation. And we're going to go through these things really quickly. He says in there in verse 5 through 6, Verse 5 through 6, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Care for one another. Serve one another. Be the body of Christ. 
Again, remember that this is being written to a people that are suffering, that are being persecuted, that are going through difficult times. And Peter's word to them is serve one another, be humble towards one another. Don't make each other's lives harder. Life's already hard enough. Rather, encourage one another. Come together. Humble yourselves towards one another. He also tells us to resist the enemy. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. He reminds us this morning, and I wish we could spend more time here, but he reminds us this morning that we have a common enemy who seeks to destroy us. Because if he can destroy our witness, then that speaks to our Father. And so he's out He's out for us. Peter says, keep watch. As you care for one another, as you humble yourselves towards one another, as you serve one another, watch each other's backs. Because the enemy wants nothing more than to gather followers of Christ and to sell them a bill of goods and lie to them and get them to be useless. So resist the enemy that you may continue to do the work of Christ. Resist the enemy for each other. Be watchful for one another to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I see this in your life and I'm worried about you. Not out of judgment, not out of trying to pick at one another, but rather out of genuine love and concern. He says as well that we are to trust the Father. Verse 8 or verse 7, it says, he says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him. This is a difficult book we've gone through. We've said that over and over again. As we talk about suffering, as we talk about pain, as we talk about persecution, it's hard, all of these things. As we've talked about that sometimes it's, or really all the time, it's the will of God that these things happen, whether it's out of discipline or whether it's out of just a broken world that we experience, all of its preparation for something grander. We trust the Father. We trust that the discipline is for our good. As Peter says, we cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. It goes back to what the song that Brian sang. He loves you. He loves you no matter what. Throw yourself at him. Throw yourself at him because we look forward as well. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We think about, we go back to chapter 1 of this passage, of this letter, and Peter is talking to us about the gospel and the great inheritance that is coming our way. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if we say, God, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. I'm making you my Lord. I will follow you wherever you go. I'll do whatever you would have me to do. If we will put our trust, because all of my eggs are in one basket. If you don't save me, then no one can from the consequences that I have earned. And so we, when we do that, we gain family. We gain adoption as brothers and sisters, as children of God. And, and Peter talks about this great inheritance. This is what he's talking about. He says, 
God's going to do this. God's going to restore you. God's going to confirm, yes, you're mine. God's going to make you stable. He's going to put your feet back on solid ground. And this is what I love. It says God himself. He's not going to send a messenger. He's not going to send an underling. He's not going to send a gopher for you. He is going to come get you himself. To restore you himself. To pour out his grace upon you himself. He is not going to leave it to none other. He did it for you and he did it the first time around in Christ. He didn't send an angel to die on the cross. He didn't send a simple man to die on the cross. God came for you. To show you his love. To restore you. And he did it himself. And he's coming again for you. And for me for his church this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper this is why we gather together because we remember that he came before himself to die for us to gain us a relationship with Christ and now we look forward to him coming again praise the Lord he will restore this is why Peter can say peace to you who are in Christ It's not just simply the absence of conflict. It is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. That he will care for you and he will love you. And that he's coming for you. Even in the presence of great suffering and great trials. Peace to you who are in Christ. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and Before we enter into the Lord's Supper, we're just going to have a time of response to God's word this morning. We don't come to this table lightly. We don't come to it just flippantly, but rather we come with great reverence. The word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians that make yourself right before you come to the table. If you have sin that's unconfessed, this is your opportunity to confess it and be right before the Lord. If you have a relationship that that's broken, then then you need to pray and, and maybe to even get up and go to that person and ask for forgiveness or to offer forgiveness to them. You make it right, though, before you take of this. Paul says in Corinthians that if, if you take this in an inappropriate manner, that you are drinking and taking judgment upon yourself. And so we pray that you would use this time to, to get right with the Lord. Maybe this morning you just needed that reminder of, of the invitation that God has done in your life, but maybe you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't know what it is to have peace in the midst of chaos. You don't know what it is to have fulfillment, to have contentment. And so we would extend the offer that Christ extends, that you can know him today, that you can know what it means to be a child of God. If you'll confess your sins, confess, hey, I've, I've screwed up. I've, I'm the one that broke the relationship between me and God. We've, we've all done that. To confess that he died on the cross to say, yes, I believe that you you were the son of God, that you died on the cross and that you rose again three days later, that you took care of the penalty for me and I put my faith in that and then I make you my Lord. I will go where you want me to go because you have bought me. You You have done all that I may have life, so I owe you everything. We extend that offer to you this morning to know him in that kind of a relationship, to know peace, to know the love of God that doesn't care what you've done but that has forgiven it all.
Let me pray with you, and then we'll have that time of response. Father, we just come before you today. We thank you for everything you've given us. We thank you for your love, Lord, that you have so extravagantly poured out on our lives. Lord, through the cross, through the resurrection, through all of the many things that we have around us, and through the promise that you're coming again. Lord, what love you've given, what grace you've given. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would just prepare ourselves to come to your table that you have set before us, that you have invited us to. I pray that we would make our hearts right as believers. Lord, I pray that if there's one here that is not a believer, that they've never put their faith and trust in you, that they've never accepted you as their Lord, Lord, that, uh, that this morning, Father, they would know you in that relationship, that they would know the freedom of that relationship. We pray all of this in your good name. Amen.